0: I like to take every moment to reaffirm that I am indeed a young disciple. That's why I come up here. Brothers and sisters, before we go to God in his word, let us go to God in prayer. Almighty God in heaven, You reign above all things. Above all things of this earth. Above the cosmos of the sky. And we praise you. Lord, we are in a fallen world. Brought down by our sin. By the sin of Adam. Lord, we need you to restore our minds and our hearts. We need your word to be a light to our feet, and we pray today that this would be true. Lord, you have been faithful in the past, and we know you will be faithful forevermore. Guide us with your spirit as your word is preached. Guide us as we hear your word as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our passage today... Continues the book of Acts, not surprisingly. Uh, we have seen a lot lately in Paul's travels. He's come from Ephesus to Jerusalem. He brought a, uh, an offering to the church in Jerusalem and has delivered that. He has found himself in the temple, and now he has been beaten by a mob and dragged out of the temple, presumably to be killed uh, the tribune, Claudius Lysias, has brought his soldiers in and has arrested Paul and quieted the trouble and has strung Paul up to be flogged. It's then that Claudius Lysias learns that Paul is a Roman citizen. And now Paul awaits in Roman custody to find out how it is he will actually go to Rome. For this is God's promise to Paul in the verse directly before our reading today. He says, you will proclaim the gospel in Rome. Now we see, as Paul awaits in Roman custody, how that will start to take shape on Paul's first leg from Jerusalem to Rome. Hear God's word, Acts 23, verse 12 through the end of the chapter. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell to him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen, and go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused uh, about questions of their law but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instruction, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will go with you, or I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Here ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and applicable word. Amen. Paul knows that he's headed for Rome, but he doesn't really know how. God has promised that Paul will go from Jerusalem to Rome, but at this time, it doesn't seem very likely. He has been beaten by an angry mob. He's been taken into Roman custody, and it doesn't really seem to be the case that Paul will be proceeding as he wishes. In fact, Paul seems to be swept along now, completely out of control of his destiny. But God is in control. Paul may not know the way to Rome now as it lies before him, but there is one who does. Psalm 1 Says that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Well, God certainly knows the way of Paul. He is laying this way before him each step of the way as he goes. You see, in our passage today, God works through individuals and institutions. God is in control. He works from, through individuals and institutions to bring Paul from Jerusalem to Rome. Brothers and sisters, more often than not, it seems as if we're being swept along as well. Many Christians experience persecution. Many Christians experience people who seem to be working directly against God's will. And yet, we have no need to fear because God is in control working through even today individuals and institutions it is through these that god delivered paul from jerusalem to rome and it is through these today that god brings his people home his purpose will be accomplished the reconciliation of his people to him the salvation Of God's people through Jesus Christ we're gonna see today in three ways worldly institutions godly institutions and civic institutions and when I say worldly institutions let me just point out that I mean institutions that are directly working against the purposes of God those who are against the purposes of God is what I mean when I say worldly institutions And that's what we'll look at first. God works through worldly institutions. The first part of our passage shows this plot that these assassins are making to kill Paul. These assassins are more than 40 men. And we can see three things about these assassins. They're organized, they're committed, and they have a critical mass. We can see that they're organized and that they have a plan. They seem to have actually a fairly well thought out plan where they're going to work through the, the leaders of the temple. And they're going to work through the Roman civil government to try and lure Paul out into the open where they can kill him. These assassins are organized. And it's often the case that God's people... It's often the case that God's people find that they are being worked against through these worldly institutions. They're organized because they've gone from a mob in Ephesus, calling out, crying out in the temple, men of Israel, rid this man from our temple. And that didn't work. And so now they've had to become a little more crafty. They've had to think about it a little bit more. And so now they have this plan. This worldly institution of assassins, well, they're organized. Now, you may, not be, you may be thinking that these assassins are not really an institution. And okay, maybe uh, groups of assassins aren't really an institution. But an institution can be defined as a group or society of people, that are organized, that have an effect on the community. And they're working through the temple institution. And so we see that these worldly institutions are working against God's servant to get to Rome. Not only are they organized, but they're committed. Two weeks ago, Jonathan preached on this passage as well, and we saw how committed they were, that they cursed themselves that they wouldn't eat any food. Right, Paul's nephew reveals that they wouldn't eat any food or have any drink until Paul was dead. They're committed to their cause. Not only are they committed to their cause and their curse, but if they would have attacked Paul being under the care of the Roman government, most likely many of them would have died at the hands of Roman soldiers as well. One way or another. These men were committed to killing Paul, to working against Paul's servant. And they've also accumulated this critical mass. They've gone from these few folks in the temple in Ephesus to these assassins who are organized. They're starting to work through the temple now, through the elders. And they're starting to work through the system of the government to call for a trial, to get more information. They're starting to have a life of their own. Starting to work through official channels instead of just being a mob. They have a critical mass. And in these things, we can see that the institutions of this world, those people that are working against God's servants, they're dangerous. They really are. This is a dangerous group of men. But what else do we see? That God uses these dangerous men to push Paul into the custody, farther into the custody of the tribune, Claudius Lysias. For now, not only is he in the soldiers' barracks, but he's surrounded with almost half of the tribune's troops. And if Paul is safer now than ever that they've hatched this plot to kill him. You see, God is in control. Even through the institutions of this world, God works for his purpose to bring Paul from Jerusalem to Rome. Even through this dangerous worldly institution, God is in control. Psalm 1 says that the governors and kings of this world plot against God. But it also says, what is it to God? For God sits in the heavens and laughs and holds them in derision. We see that now as God works through the institution of the family. Through the voice of one young man, almost completely anonymous, other than that he's Paul's nephew, the plans of this dangerous mob are thwarted. Through the voice of this one young man, more than 40 Jewish assassins cannot carry out their plan. It's as if God is laughing at them. Through one young man, I will defeat you. I'll show you that I am in control. Brings us to consider Paul's nephew. We don't get much about Paul's nephew in the scripture. We know in Philippians that Paul wrote that he lost all things for his proclamation of the gospel. Some people think that part of this all things is his family, that his family has disowned him. If that's the case, if this nephew has even disowned Paul, what better way to see the power of the institution of the family, a godly institution in place at the creation of Adam and Eve? God works through worldly institutions, but he also works through godly institutions like the family. Now, if this young man had disowned his uncle Paul, and he's still making his way to the soldiers barracks to rescue his uncle, we see the power of family ties. Many of us can testify to the fact that we feel obligations to our family, whether we necessarily like them or not sometimes. We feel like we need to be with our family. The institution of the family is a strong weapon against the mobs of Satan it is here how much more stronger is a godly family how much more stronger against the devices of Satan is a godly family why would Satan work so hard to dismantle the family if it wasn't a wonderful way to defeat him why would he work so hard to split up husbands and wives Why would Satan work so hard to spread our families thin in our schedules through obligations and recreations? Why would he work so hard to keep us from being with our church family? Because he knows that for ages, the institution of the family has been used by God to thwart his attempts to destroy God's people. Yes, brothers and sisters, a godly family is a powerful weapon. That points us to our obligations as a godly family. Mothers and fathers, that points us to our obligations to teach our children the deposit of faith this handed down from ages, to pray with our children, to sing with our children, to worship with our children, to catechize our children. The truths of Scripture need to be known by our children. And maybe I'll throw out a, maybe a dirty word, indoctrination. Some people don't like the word indoctrination, but the truth is it will happen one way or another. We will either indoctrinate our children with the truth of Scripture, or we will indoctrinate our children with the truth or the, with the false lies of the world. It's the wisdom of God or the wisdom of the world. There's two ways. We have to make a decision. Now there is one institution that is stronger than the family. One institution that continues on into eternity. And so if you don't have children, maybe they live somewhere else, you're not off the hook. Because we have all made vows to our covenant children here in this congregation at every baptism that we would help raise them up and show them a godly example. This is the institution of the church. The family was here from the beginning, but the church will continue on into eternity, into the new heavens and the new earth. It is our responsibility as parents to bring our children into the life of the church. And our responsibility as the church to continue building up our children in the faith because a godly family is a strong weapon indeed against the mobs of Satan and the worldly institutions that surround us. God is at work through worldly institutions. He's at work through godly institutions. And he's also at work through civil institutions, as we see in our text today. The nephew is taken to Lysias. He's taken to Lysias fairly quickly, it seems, and he's taken aside privately and asked what the message is. And as the nephew explains to Lysias this plot to kill Paul, Lysias kind of jumps into action, doesn't he? He says, don't tell anyone about this. He realizes that there's some intrigue afoot. There's some need for secrecy. Right? He jumps into action and he calls the centurions to come and ready the troops. We're sending Paul to the governor for safety. These things are all true. Lysias is delivering Paul out of harm's way. They may be all true, but they're not necessarily all truistic. We can see that there's uh, an aspect of self-serving in Lysias' actions. So he's self-serving Lysias. And self-serving Lysias, he's, uh, he's given himself away in his letter to Felix. In verse 27, he says, This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. When I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Ah, noble Lysias swooping in to rescue Paul, the Roman citizen. Noble Lysias entrusted with a thousand troops to keep the peace in Jerusalem. But we know that's not necessarily the case. Luke tells us that when Lysias came, he arrested Paul. So he kept the peace. Sure, but he arrested a Roman citizen and strung up a Roman citizen without due process to flog him. It was only when Paul reminded him that he should not do these things to a Roman citizen that Lysias took him into protective custody. You see, he reverses what's going on there. He says, I rescued him having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Really, he rescued him because... That was his job. And probably that was part of his reputation as a, a ruler. He didn't rescue him because Paul was a Roman citizen. He had no idea. So we can see as, as Lysias whitewashes the account for Governor Felix, maybe there's this notion, a sense of self-serving. He's a, he's a man who knows how to survive. He's a man that has purchased his Roman citizenship at a great cost. I can only imagine one who has purchased his citizenship and then become a commander of a thousand people. That is what a tribune traditionally was, a commander of a thousand troops. Anyone who has worked their way up in the military has got to know how to do something right, whether it's politics or whether it's military might. If he fails to protect a citizen... He might be seen as incompetent, but not Lysias. Lysias wants to make sure things go as planned. We can see that Lysias is self-serving also in the size of the troop that he sends with Paul. 470 soldiers. Soldiers, spearmen, horsemen. This is a big troop. Remember, he has a 1,000 troops at his command. He sent 470 of them to bring Paul in the dead of night Across the country. He wants to make sure this doesn't go sideways. He wants to make sure Paul arrives so that he can say he kept the peace. He rescued Paul, the citizen, and he's a good tribune. Despite the fact that Lysias may be self-serving, God still delivers Paul out of danger through the hands of of the Roman government. God works through these things despite all the problems that surround it. Paul is safer now than he was before, miles and miles, about 60 miles away now from these assassins, surrounded by a troop of 470 soldiers, a great force. We might look at the self serving nature of Lysias. But also we might see the extravagance of our God and how he protects Paul from danger. And how he protects Paul from danger to achieve God's purpose, the proclamation of the gospel in Rome. It is amazing to take a step back and see the fingerprint of God. To step back and see how God works. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Look at the parallel between Paul and our Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ was delivered by an angry mob into the hands of the Roman Pontius Pilate. It's there where God accomplished his purpose of salvation when Pontius Pilate delivered Jesus from the hands of the Roman government to the nails of the cross. It is there that God accomplished salvation for his people when Jesus died for the punishment of our sins. Look at the parallel now. As God works the same way to deliver Paul from an angry mob into the hands of the Roman government once again to achieve God's purpose. Christ achieved salvation on the cross, but Paul will be delivered to Rome to achieve the spread of that good news that Jesus died for the sins of all those who believe in him. God works in the same way, from persecution to civil government, through individuals and institutions to achieve his purpose, the salvation of his people. Brothers and sisters, when we look around and we feel like maybe we don't know where we are anymore, when we don't recognize a world that's unfamiliar, filled with people who are working against God's purposes, filled with the institutions of religions that persecute God's people violently, filled with a place that persecutes Christians financially, filled with people who are organized and committed and working against God's people. In the face of these Troubles, beloved, fear not, because God is in control. God is working through these institutions and individuals. He does so as he brings Paul from Jerusalem to Rome, and he'll do so as he brings us, his people, home. Praise be to our great God. Let's pray. Father, you are indeed the commander of the heavenly hosts, the commander of power unimaginable to us, for you are God. And we worship you, for you work in ways that we do not understand. You can purpose evil for good. You can work through the ways of this world And you deliver your people, because you are over all. We give you praise, Lord, for the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let us rise and profess the truths of Scripture found in the words of the Apostles' Creed. Christians, what do you believe?